We have a common expression that we use once in a while when we are discussing some matter, some argument, we speak about the other side of the koan. Every koan has two sides. You never saw a one-sided quarter. Every koan in the treasury of God, in his truth, has two sides. And they're not contradictory either. They're complementary to each other. And most of the problems in Christian living today, individually, and in the church living corporately, is because we do not balance properly both sides of every one of these koans. There is, for instance, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and power of choice. The Bible says that God chooses us before we choose him. Acts 13.48 says, Not as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. It says, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Then in John 6, uh, 44, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. In John 6, 37, All the Father giveth me shall come and to me, and then the other side of it, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. How do you explain that? I don't. I accept it. And I'm glad they're both there. These are parallel columns that meet beyond our sight. Just as you look down a railroad track and it seems to converge in the far distance, so these two get together in the mind of God, not in ours. There's an illustration, for instance, not an explanation, but an illustration of it in Acts 27 in the account of Paul's voyage to Rome. You remember that he had told him everybody's going to be saved. There won't be any lives lost. And then when the storm struck and the ship eventually began to disintegrate and some of them started to jump out, he said, except you stay in the ship, you'll not be saved. They'd already told them they'd be saved. Why didn't you just tell them, jump if you want to? Do any kind of way, you're going to be saved anyhow. He said, except you stay in the ship, you won't be saved. I don't explain that. I merely say it illustrates it. And in this day of worldwide lawlessness, I'm glad there is a God on the throne. There isn't any authority anywhere else that's getting anywhere much. Uh, uh, we may look like uh, criminals and crooks who are about to take it over, and uh, will, unless there's an intervention, which there will be. I left Monday from Greensboro to come here, and as my friend who brought me to the airport, as we drove through uh, the employment agency in town and the uh, Social Security building, we saw a mob of people up several different streets in all directions. And my friend said, I believe there are 5,000 people here for help, relief, what have you. Just in my town. And so we find ourselves saying, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God, within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. That's our confidence tonight. And I'm glad that I have uh, uh, the power of choice. 
God will avenge his own elect, though he bear along with him. Sometimes we wonder why he doesn't come down here and straighten out this mess, but it says, he will, though he bear along. I'm glad that I have the power of choice on the other side of this sovereignty of God. I'm not an automaton, I'm not a zombie, I'm not a robot. I believe both sides of the coin. And then there's another coin, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, both. He had to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, to be the Savior of men. We have a lot of smartness in America. It's got us into a lot of trouble in the last few years, more trouble than it's got us out of. And uh, somehow we are foolish enough to think that our know-how and our superiority and our science and our uh, sophistication is going to answer the problem. No, no. The trouble is that all our expertise and our know-how does not know what to do with our main problem, and our main problem is sin. And science has no answer to sin. Uh, in sin did my mother conceive me. That's the fix we're in. I heard of an old preacher who had preached a great sermon on the depravity of the human heart. Somebody came up after the sermon and said, I just can't swallow this depravity you've been preaching about. The old preacher said, you don't have to swallow it, it's already in you. <laughs> and so whether you like it or not, you've got it. And Jesus had to be both Son of God and Son of Man to be our Savior. Son of God without sin, no sin in him, but all sin on him, meeting all the demands of God's holiness, and then Son of Man, identified with sinful humanity and the Word made flesh and dwelling among us, he lived among us, tempted in all points, like as we are. He wasn't a guru in some Shangri-La somewhere droning out platitudes. He was 30 years working in a carpenter shop. What a strange preparation to be the Savior of the world. Ah, have you ever thought much about the silent years at Nazareth? Most of his life was spent that way. Now, we would never have planned it that way if we'd been sending the Savior to earth. We'd have had him born in Rome, Alexandria, or Athens, and brought up in the highest kind of culture. But here's one who came in the woodworker shop. What was the idea? I think there were several reasons, but one was, I believe, that he wanted to be identified with ordinary folks and their ordinary day-by-day -day problems, and he knew something about it. And I'm so glad, and after the resurrection, why didn't he go to Rome, Alexander, and Athens, and say, here I am, they crucified me, and I'm out of the grave. Nobody saw him except the disciples. That's poor advertising. Why? Because he wanted it made plain that he was here to help us. And most of the things he did after his resurrection, simplest things in the world, comforting a weeping woman by the sepulcher, uh, having supper with the disciples at Emmaus, and getting old Simon Peter straightened out again. And all that, just, just ordinary things, but he's still doing them. And I'm glad that he does and condescends to us men of lower state. And then Calvary and the resurrection. And I think that Festus summed it up about as well as anybody in the Bible when in Acts 25, 18, he was said, well, all this fuss around here is about some kind of a religious squabble. 
There are some folks that are all excited about a fellow called Paul and about somebody named Jesus whom Paul affirms to be alive. That's a pretty good statement of the resurrection from an infidel and a heathen, wasn't it? Paul says he's living. Well, that's exactly the message that we have today. And my Bible says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in thine heart, God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Somebody was dealing with a Jewish unbeliever some time ago and telling him about the Messiah who had come. And this Jew said, I, I don't want to worship a dead Jew. And my friend said, He's not dead. That's just it. He's living. He's living today. There's only one thing that Jesus ever was. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. He always lives in the present. And he stands between a yesterday that never had a beginning and a tomorrow that will never have an ending. Between the two stands Jesus Christ, the same. And that includes tonight. And I'm glad that that's the way it reads. And if he's not risen, then our preaching's in vain and our faith is in vain and we're false witnesses and yet we're yet in our sins. There's no hope for the dead and we have no gospel. And so you see that with every one of these precious truths, you take faith and works. You can't separate them. There's one whole book in the New Testament written expressly to make clear we'd better get straightened out on the other side of that koan. Now, you're saved by faith without works, but you're say, not saved by faith that is without works. It's going to express itself in works if it's real. The, it's impossible to be happy in Jesus unless you trust and obey. Whoever wrote that had it straight. I used to ride the trains, the C&O and the B&O, but the best ride in the world is on the T&O. Trust and obey. You've got to follow the faith by action. When Naaman, the general over there in Israel, uh, was a leper, and that little girl in the household said, you ought to get in touch with that preacher out here in the country. He's able to heal folks. And so Naaman took off with a retinue of servants and a whole lot of money to hunt up that country preacher, Elisha. And when he came to the festival, Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. He said, go tell him dip in Jordan seven times. And the general said, who does he think I am and who does he think he is? That muddy creek when we've got two good rivers, uh, Farper and Abana over there in my country. And he was about to go home in a rage. And one of the boys said, well, now, it's very simple. And you can't, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it won't kill you to dip in Jordan seven times. And you won't be any worse. If you don't get better, why, why don't we try it? So he decided to give it a try. And I'm glad he went through with it. One, two, three, four, five, six. About that time he could have said, this is the silliest business I ever got tangled up with in my life. Some of the boys could have said, let's go back home. This is a phony sort of business. We're all making fools out of ourselves. But he went down and came up again. And bless God, his flesh was like the flesh of a little child. You just do what God says and go through with it, friend. Don't stop at six. Go through. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live. There's your trust and obey. It runs that way all through the book. Now, any way you look at it, you've got two sides. And if you don't get both sides of the coin, you will have trouble in your Christian life. Jesus said, My peace I give unto thee. That's one side. 
I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now you get that together. Both are true. He brings peace to the heart when you trust him. But if you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have some trouble. May divide the family. He said, I came to divide families. He unites families and he divides them. He's united many a family and he's divided many a family. I've come to set one member of the family against another, Jesus said, and he's done it again and again. Because, you see, loyalty to Jesus Christ always costs you something, sometimes right under the same roof. It makes a division. Not peace but a sword. I wrote a book, I never had much of a sale, Not Peace But a Sword. It was a kind of a story of a young preacher and his uh, church, some of them, decided they were going to take Jesus seriously and see what happened. My, I got them in more trouble in 10 chapters than I could get them out of in 50. Because you just take a stand for Jesus and you're in trouble from the very beginning. But it costs. And then again, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Thank God for that, but what does he say next? Take my yoke upon you and learn and you'll find rest. Lord, I thought you were going to give it to us. No, you got to go to school. It's an obtainment and it's an attainment. Now, a lot of dear people today want to feel rested and have that wonderful rest and they don't want to go to school to Jesus and they don't want to do their homework and their report card is something awful. And they're not studying at all to follow Jesus. You've got to go to his school. He's running the school. You've got to do your homework and uh, do the things that he says do. Learn them and do them both. I hear a lot of preaching about, well, I used to. I beg your pardon. I don't hear much of it anymore. On separation from the world. Most of the church members are settled down in the world. and They're getting along pretty well, thank you, and enjoying it. And they don't want some uh, fellow out of the dark ages to come along and say, give up the world until it gets by. Uh, I remember preaching in 7th and James Baptist Church in Waco across the street from Baylor University. And on Wednesday night, we combined this service with the Baylor Religious Hour, and I went over there, and here was the great Baylor choir behind me, and faculty and students and the church folks all out there. And I preached on love, not the world, and I said, now I want you to sing, The, the Way of the Cross Leads Home. Now that first verse, you don't sing it much up here. We sing it a lot down south. The way of the cross leads home. The first verse says that. I must needs go home that way and no other. And you could take a vote and everybody would agree on that. But the last verse says, Then I bid farewell to the way of the world. I walk in it nevermore. Uh-oh. Now you talk about something that will throw a chill over the meeting. That'll do it. I said, all you folks that voted amen on verse 1, how about verse, the fourth verse? Mighty quiet over the place. And I find that everywhere I go. And I gave an invitation that night, and I found out just a year or two ago the two, of, two or three of our foremost preachers now, one in a fine church in Dallas, another second Pontsylvania in Atlanta, Georgia, and another were students there then. And they've told me since in their own wonderful pulpits who said it was when you were there, and I had to take a stand, said you made an invitation uh, that was uncomfortable and embarrassing. But I had to take a stand. And they did, and bless God, they're pastors of two great churches now, and God's blessed them. That's what I'm after. That's the only payoff I'm interested in about this business, folks that mean business with the Lord. 
And they said, we'll do it. Goodbye, world. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And they crossed before me, the world behind me, no turning back. So that's uh, what you have here. Separation also from the world, and then there's involvement in the world. Well, how in the world do you get that together? Well, read John 17. said, I've chosen you out of the world. Now he said, as the Father has sent me into the world, even so send I you into the world. And in John 17, you are told four things. We've been saved out of the world. We're still in the world. We're not of the world. But we've been saved out of the world to go right back into the world to win others out of the world. And that's the only business we've got in this world. <laughs> now you get that straight and you won't have much trouble, but there it is. You can't get around it. John 17, that's the high priestly prayer of our Lord. We must keep clean for Jesus because we represent him. You go into the operating room in the hospital and the surgeons are clad immaculately and the nurses and the instruments have been sterilized and everything is made clean for your sakes. And Jesus said, for their sakes I sanctify myself. Every preacher and every Christian ought to be clean in the sight of God because we're living in a sick world. People that are all smitten with the, uh, all the microbes of iniquity. And if we're to help them, we must be clean in the sight of God and as we minister to men. Then the Bible has its positives and negatives. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13, 14. That's, that's positive. What's the rest of the verse? Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Well, now, Lord, if you were going to do the first half, you wouldn't need that last half, would you? Well, evidently we do. So there it is. It's double-barreled. And I read in Romans 12, too. Uh, I, usually I hear sermons begin with the next verse, be not conformed to this world, or at least I used to when preacher preached about getting out of the world, uh, you know. Uh, there I go again. I'm remembering it the way it used to be. I've been around a pretty good while. But... Uh, it's a mistake to take a text that starts with the word and and preach it as though that's all God was trying to say at that place because where it says there, be not conformed, the first word in that verse is and. Well, evidently, something went before it. And the Bible says, present your bodies a living sacrifice and so on, and be not conformed to the world. Now, you see, you're not starting right if you just quit dancing, quit smoking, and three or four other things. And first of all, you haven't done the first thing, presented yourself, your body a living sacrifice. I know some folks that have quit three or four things, but uh, uh, I feel like asking them, and I've quit this, and I've quit that, and I uh, say, well, so is a gatepost. What are you doing? To the glory of God. They've never presented their bodies a living sacrifice. They will give up these things. You may be sure of that. Let's get it straight. And uh, it runs that way throughout the Bible. Uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's a great verse. I hear sermons on it, but the first word's and. And the verse just before it says, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. Now, don't you see, you haven't got all God was trying to say in that passage till you start right. So it goes all the way through. Heaven, 
and hell. And I had a country church years ago. I was running in for devil and the crowd said, I wish you wouldn't preach so much on judgment and hell. Preach more about the meek and lowly Jesus. And what he didn't know was that most of the information I have about hell I got from the meek and lowly Jesus. Jesus said more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. A place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. I have a friend in Greensboro, a wonderful Presbyterian layman, Christian businessman and so on, David Petty. And I eat over at his house often with him in Virginia. One time he came out and laid on the table something he'd cut out of the paper. Now this is not by a Christian. It's, uh, that is, uh, we probably wouldn't think so. Uh, but a very brilliant man, William Buckley, and he quotes, however, Hilaire Bloke, who is an unbelieving writer. But the strange thing about it is that here from the most unexpected source, we have somebody that knows a, a little bit afraid to say there's no hell. He said, we sit by and watch these barbarians. We tolerate them in the long stretches of peace. We're not afraid of their irreverence. They're comic uh, uh, making fun of our old certitudes and our fixed creeds, and it refreshes us and we laugh. But as we laugh, we are watched by large and awful faces beyond a chasm. And on those faces, there is no smile. I don't know if any preacher ever put it any better than that. If you could get one look at that crowd that's on the other side tonight, they're not smiling. They're not laughing. And I wish that some of the seriousness could get on this side of the deal. It runs that way, beloved, all the way through, through the book. Lost and saved, of course. Now and then we see now. Now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. And as I said yesterday, uh, as in an enigma we see not yet. And if you're having trouble and you're saying, Lord, uh, have you forgotten me? Why does everything turn out so miserably in my poor life? I'm all messed up, mixed up. I'm having trouble, family trouble, financial trouble, physical trouble. Lord, uh, it's not reading right. Listen, friend, you don't measure any book by the middle of the book. You read it all and then you make sense out of it. You're going through the middle of the book now. One of these days you're going to get through it. And if you're in the will of God, it's going to add up. Don't measure it by the middle of the book where you are tonight. You're not through yet. My Bible says we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And everybody stops there. Well, that's nowhere to stop. To them that are the cold according to his purpose, and that's nowhere to stop. What was his purpose? Read on that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son. God's out to make us like Jesus. Now everything that contributes to that, that's, that's what he's talking about. All things work together for good. It may be suffering. We'd all like to go to sleep some night and wake up in heaven without going through the awful things. I'm thinking about my dear brother... Uh, one of the fine preachers now in Norfolk, he's probably gone to heaven by now, in the agonies, the agonies of cancer. And uh, you say, why, Lord? Well, uh, 
I don't know, but Jesus said to Peter, now when you were young, you, you dressed to suit yourself and went where you wanted to. When you get old, they're going to take you around where you don't want to go. This he said signifying by what death he should glorify God. Poor old Simon Peter had plenty of trouble. It looked like Jesus saved the most of it for the last yet. That's the way you're going to glorify I don't understand all that, but I've been praying through these days. I've got a fourfold prayer. I pray first, even so come Lord Jesus. I'll settle for that any time. But if he holds it up a while, I say in the second place, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. Old Ernie Revell, Pappy Reveal in Evansville, Indiana, ran the rescue mission there. My, what a man. What a man. I loved him. He could get any preacher to come. He wanted just to be with him. Everybody from Billy Sunday to Billy Graham came over there to speak to be with Pappy because he knew the Lord. And he said, said, Lord, I want a quick getaway. And he got it. He was crippled. His wife was getting breakfast and he was in bed shaving. He was crippled. Shaved one side and laid the razor down and went on to heaven. Now, we don't all get it that way, but I say there's no harm putting your name in the pot. <laughs> My Bible says you have not because you ask not. I'm not going to run a chance of missing something like here. I think it's all right. Your daddy uh, gave you what you needed, but there are things you wanted sometimes. He didn't know you wanted when you let him know you wanted. He sometimes got that for you too, didn't he? Why, of course he did. And our Heavenly Father loves to do for us so far above the absolute necessities of life. Tell him about it. Just talk natural. He knows what you're like anyhow. Just, just talk to it. So, then, it says that we have a responsibility toward God and toward man. Toward God, toward man. That's what the cross is all about. It's got two beams, one up this way. That's perpendicular, vertical beam. Toward God, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. That's the horizontal beam. Now, I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I don't carry a crucifix, but many times in my walks, I find myself saying, Lord, how am I doing toward you? Anything between me and thee? That's a good thing to ask about. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face is not seen. And then I say, Lord, is anybody mad at me, or is there anything between me and anybody that I can straighten out? Is, is there somebody here tonight that somebody's mad at you, or you're mad at somebody, or you've got an evil spirit, and it never, you never have forgiven them? You claim to be a Christian. Jesus said, you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has owed against you. Doesn't matter whose fault it is. He didn't say anything about that. Hang on to your church envelope till you get right with your brother. Now you see, that's where the shoe pinches. And I find sometimes that revival meeting started when somebody got right. A pastor told me on a Monday morning not long ago, he said, a lady called me up this morning, said I didn't sleep last night. I've got a sister that hasn't, we haven't spoken to each other in two years, but I've called her up. She's coming to see me. We're going to get right. And that's revival. It's not a whole lot of hooping and hollering and everybody joining the church. It's everybody getting right with God. 
Old Charles G. Finney said, A revival is a new beginning of obedience to God. That's a strange definition, but it's obedience. It's doing what God wants you to do. And when you do that, you'll have a revival in your own heart. And if enough church folks will have it, they'll have a revival in the church. Oh, I'm not talking about perfection. Nobody's got sinless perfection. But you can be blameless even though you can't be faultless. When a little child writes a letter the best it could, it's not a perfect letter, but it was a blameless letter. When you do as best you can. Nobody's perfect. Oh, I know they tell the tale about that meeting where the preacher said, nobody in this place perfect. Do you know anybody perfect? One man raised his hand and said, my wife's first husband. <laughs> but, uh, don't aim at that, but as near as you can, yes. Doing the will of God, George Truth, that great preacher said, success is recognizing the will of God and doing it as best you can. Now, he, of course, meant by the Holy Spirit, that great godly man knew about that. But that's so simple, and he certainly did it in his life. And uh, that's a great recipe, it seems to me. And then, you've heard it already, I think, tonight. Be doers of the word. That's the other side of the coin. And not hearers only. Everybody quotes it that far and they all stop. I've never heard anybody yet quote all the verse. They have to read it to see the rest of it. Deceiving your own selves. When you hear the word of God in a meeting and you won't do it, you're going out worse than you came in. That's a, it's a serious thing to go to the house of God and hear the word of God. It's a serious thing to be here tonight. We can be happy, yes, and all that, but it's a serious thing to be in God's house and face his word. You can't go out that door, friend, like you came in. Your heart will be either more tender or it will be more determined against God. It builds up one way or the other. You can't go out the same. It never works that way. You have the privilege of hearing the word of God, and uh, then you have the requirement that you do it, and if you don't, you have the penalty of self-deception, fooling themselves. But most of all, most of all, Jesus Savior, Jesus Lord, and I believe that most of the trouble in our Christian living today is that we've got too many folks trying to get to heaven on a half a case of religion. Jesus is Savior, and don't have anything to do with him as Lord. Now, if you take Jesus for all you know him to be at that time, God will save you. You don't have to be a theologian. But nobody can take Jesus as Savior. That's free and didn't cost you anything. But you won't take him as Lord because that will cost you everything. If you won't do that willfully, deliberately, you are still not a Christian. I hear about accepting Christ. I can't find that in the New Testament. You show me the verse that accepts. It says believe and follow and a whole lot of other words. But accept always sort of conveys to me the idea of I'm doing him a favor. Big question is, will he accept me? Well, thank God he will. Him that cometh unto me, I'll no wise cast out. But on his terms and not on mine. 
There are a lot of people today that are willing to accept the Jesus that they've whittled down to their size. I'm willing to be the kind of a Christian that I've got down to what I think I want to live up to. God won't do any business with you on that score. You've got to take the whole thing. Coming to Jesus doesn't save you unless you take up your cross and follow him. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, but he didn't get saved. And he said, if you come to me and you don't hate father and mother, take up your cross and follow me. Cannot, says it three times in one passage over there. Cannot, cannot be my disciple. I've had to change my invitation a good deal in the last year or two. I used to preach all the time a number of different invitations, one for the unsaved and one for the unsure and one for the undedicated and one for the worldly Christians and one for people about their life work, what am I going to do? And I found there's one thing that will cover every need in every congregation, and that is one thing. Ask people to do this. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead in your heart? Do you believe he's the Son of God? If thou wilt confess with thy mouth out loud, not walk down the aisle and shake hands with the preacher. I can't find that in the New Testament either. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in thine heart, thou shalt be saved. Thou shalt be saved. It must be, beloved, it must be uh, uh, several things. It, it, it must be uh, visible. Before man. That's what he said. I was in a church where a pastor said, now we've got a couple back there that have made a confession of Christ in the home, but they won't come apart. They don't believe in that. And I preached and we gave the invitation. I saw that woman nudge that man and they came. She got the idea. Before man. If you're ashamed of me, Jesus said, I'll be ashamed of you right there. I don't know why our churches, and I've said it all over this country, and I have preachers to say, well, it is interesting, Brother Abner. I don't remember anybody ever doing that. Requiring that, and yet it's as plain as anything in the Word of God. Visible, audible, and credible. It must be before men. It must be out loud so that you can hear it must be from the heart. That's what the book says. And if you will do that, it'll take care of any problem you've got. If you're not saved tonight, it'll take care of that. If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he's the Son of God, and you're willing to receive him as Jesus, Jesus means Savior, if thou shalt confess the Savior as Lord, that's both, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That settles that. It'll take care of your assurance. A lot of good people don't have assurance. They're troubled sometimes about whether they're really saved or not. Some of them say, well, I went down the aisle with a crowd of kids one time on rally day and joined the church and never have felt sure about it. Sometimes I think I'm saved and then I don't know. And I'm having a miserable time. But don't let the devil worry you to death all the rest of your life. Say, Lord, whatever I did or didn't do back yonder, if I didn't do it right, I believe now that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he rose from the dead, and I'm going to do what it says. I'm going to let the world know it and stand up and say out loud, I confess Jesus as my Lord. Uh, my Lord, mind you. Confessing him as Lord, everybody's going to do that one of these days. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That won't save them. 
because most of them will be in hell, but confessing Jesus is Lord, sure is Lord. Everybody's going to find that out. But I confess Jesus as my Lord. One of the greatest of the saints, old Samuel Rutherford, I keep uh, his prayers by the side of the bed uh, where I can easily find them. And he said there are a lot of people who would cut Jesus Christ in half. Now, this was back in the 15th or 16th century. And you have to have notes at the bottom of the page because the idiom was so different then. But, oh, I, I love to read those things. Said, uh, he said uh, there are plenty of people who would cut Jesus in half and take the Savior part. But, Lord, uh, he said, that is the stormy north side of Jesus Christ. Never heard that before. And he means you get in trouble and you take him as Lord. The devil's going to get mad and you, because that's when the battle sets in. Of course you take the free part. Who wouldn't? You're always looking for a bargain. And you get a free salvation. Sure, Lord, that's fine. Will you take him as your Lord? Well, no, I don't know. I've got some ideas of my own. That is the tragedy in the church today. We fill the churches with people that are, they'll take him as Savior, but they won't take him as Lord. And the Word of God says that that's what you have to do to be saved. When it comes to dedication, I guarantee you, if you will do that, you'll be dedicated. As far as separating from the world, I won't have any trouble with you about worldliness if you make Jesus Lord. You name it. Your life work, if you make him Lord, you'll find out what he wants you to do. He, he's not telling some people because they wouldn't do it if he did tell them. If you're willing to do the will of God, he'll tell you. He's short-handed now. The harvest is plenteous. The labors are few. God's short-handed indeed. Not got enough to go around, it looks like. He's looking for volunteers. You just mean business. You say, Lord, you name it and I'll go with you. I think of that old granddad who took his little boy around little trips at home with him wherever he went. And one day he asked him to go along. The little fellow said, where are you going, granddad? And the granddad went on without him. And he came back to the boy and said, why didn't you take me? He said, you said, where are you going? He said, if you'd wanted to go with me, it wouldn't have mattered where I was going. Don't you ever ask Jesus, now, Lord, what are you getting me into here? I'll do this, but I won't do that. Uh-uh. That's not the way you do it. And when you say Jesus is Lord, anywhere with Jesus I can safely go, anywhere he leads me, this world below. That's it. You've listened so well, dear friends. I can't close tonight without asking this of you. Just how real are we tonight about all this? Are you prepared tonight not only to hear it, but to do it. Now, it's a serious business, and I'm, I've got, I'm responsible for giving messages, and I, uh, when the Spirit of God says, give the folks a chance, you better give the folks a chance. How much do you mean business tonight? How many people are there in this place that you claim Jesus is Savior, but to tell the truth, He is not Lord of your life? You're doing some things the way you want to do it. And you're not ready to sing, Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Have you ever made him Lord? 
have you ever done so out loud with the mouth, like the Bible says? I'm going to take a few moments. I've asked this all over America. And God has never failed me because when I honor the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he'll honor the meeting. This would be the first place that it didn't happen. I wonder how many tonight. I don't want you to get up and make me feel good. I don't want you to get up just because, well, it's the thing to do. But if in your heart, if you have not been acknowledging Jesus as the Lord of all your life, and there's one point even, would you be willing tonight to do it the way the New Testament does it? Would you be willing just to stand where you are and say just one thing? I confess Jesus as my Lord. Now, I believe that you're honest people. You look like it. I don't believe you'd get up for the, just to be doing something. I think if you, if you mean it, you will. I don't want you to if you don't mean it. But I'm going to take a little time. And if he has not been Lord of your life, and you may be teaching a Sunday school class and working in church, but there's one area that you're still keeping under your own dominion. You've not said one great big yes to Jesus about everything. Would you be willing tonight, and I'm not going to beg you to be so glad to do it that it would be the uh, easiest thing in the world. I want to ask if anybody is convicted enough and humble enough and honest enough. Maybe you've done it in the past and you've backslid and things are not as good as they were. Well, reaffirm it. But I wonder, who on this side? Do I have a volunteer over here somewhere that would be willing to stand tonight and say, I confess Jesus is my Lord. Just that. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Now, I'm glad everybody's not just bouncing up carelessly. I'd rather have a dozen people to stand and say, I mean it. If I knew how to mean it any better, I would. God knows it is best I can understand it and mean it tonight. I confess Jesus. My Lord. I'm not begging you, I'm just giving you the chance. Yes? God bless you. Yes. Yes, dear lady. Amen. How about in this section? Will you stand and say like it says, I confess Jesus is my Lord? Right. God bless you. Amen. You know, in most of my meetings, sometimes couples get up, man and wife, and they say, and everybody gets a joy out of it. We 
confess Jesus as our Lord. If you want to do that, remember that we, uh, if you both mean it, why, it's a good testimony to the glory of God. That's what I'm talking about. Amen. Amen. God bless you. If we had more of this, we wouldn't be reading some of the things we're reading in the papers. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Yes. God bless you, sister. Yes. Yes. God bless you. God bless you. Amen. Amen. We, God bless you both. God bless you. It goes on over there now. Is anybody in that? God bless you. Now let me stop just a moment. Do you realize, dear friends, that you've just said the greatest thing you can ever say? There's nothing else you could ever say on the face of this earth greater than this. This is it. This is the standard of the church. And in the early church, they'd stand under the ground and those uh, catacombs. I confess Jesus is Lord and they'd throw them to the lions next day. They don't do that now. We don't know what we may go through yet, but that's what turned the world upside down, that kind of devotion. You can have that, whatever the consequence, anywhere. If you don't want to leave here with it unsaid. Yes. Amen. God bless you both. Yeah. Yes, God bless you both. All four of you. Well. Amen. Uh, everybody satisfied? Look out now. Amen. I like that. Loud and clear. Not ashamed of him. He said, if you're ashamed of me down here, I'll be ashamed of you up there. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Amen. God bless you, sister. Amen. There may be, yes, God bless you both. We've had young and old standing tonight. There may be some young fellow here that all bothered about what am I going to do with my life. This will settle it. Turn it over to him. He's the only one who knows what to do with it. 
Maybe there's a young fellow, maybe you're in school now, sort of undecided what to do. I don't mean you have to be a preacher and go to some foreign field. Just say, Lord, here I am. Anywhere with Jesus, you name it. But I mean it. If you've never done it, young fellow, young lady, stand now and go on record before God and men that you've done it. And the next time the devil comes around and says, that's been settled. You'd be surprised what that'll do for you and what it'll do for the cause of the Lord. Got any more volunteers of any age? Yes, young man. God bless you. Amen. 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 And you older folks, you know, there's a good... I want to make him Lord of what's left. I've been saying that today myself. I, sort of, I don't know, I haven't got much left, not much as I had, but you're welcome to it. You old folks don't sit around now waiting on the mortician. Say, Lord, I'm still here. I want you to be Lord of what's left. May not have much money, much time, much anything, but you're still here. God loves that sort of dedication. And who knows? The youngest person in here tonight may be the next one to go into eternity. The graves are all sizes in the cemetery. It's a good thing to be ready. Father, we, we thank Thee that Thou hast proven again. Without fail, it always goes. That when we honor the Lordship of thy Son, thou will honor the meeting. Lord, there are other folks here we believe would say this if we went on and on. May they not fail to take advantage of that opportunity. We believe there's something about it that if we do it the way the book says, thou wilt bless it with a special blessing. There are young folks who stood tonight, Lord, and the devil doesn't like that, and he's going to make it difficult if he can. But we believe thou wilt give victory. And these couples, Lord, how we, our hearts go out to them. They're still walking the trail of life together. God bless them. Make the rest of it the best ever. Or oh, it may be the most difficult in a way, but with the sense of the presence of God. And then, Lord, I noticed that some dear souls had to stand alone. And I know what that means. And so I pray for them. Oh, Lord, Lord of what's left, be it little or much, we acknowledge it tonight. Hold our being absolute sway. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.